You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am your salivating host, Abraham. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that was wildly inappropriate. I wasn't inappropriate. ready for that. I wasn't ready sorry for that. Sorry for all my misophonia um, listeners. <laughs> and I am your, I guess, rapidly blinking host, Shane. Nice. So, <laughs> Shane, have you ever thought about how many of the things that we do are automatic and involuntary, such as sneezing, blinking, flop sweating? Uh-huh. I didn't really think about this until I started studying in our field. And I was just kind of like, now I describe it as like, you're hardwired to do these things. Like, if you were a computer, you've this is your 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 firmware that comes with you. Like, you factory settings, essentially. Yeah, this is the Notes app on an iPhone. <laughs> yeah, it is. Absolutely. You're not getting rid of it at any time. So, yeah, this whole thing of if you have ever started to sweat when you're nervous, if you've ever started to feel hungry when you see a sign for your favorite restaurant, these are all examples of what we're talking about, at least in part. The implication, I guess, of our mm-hmm. subject, our main mm-hmm point of discourse yes and his contributions to the field of psychology to the field of biology in a way is these considerations these kind of things of like why would your body make you feel hungry when you receive a visual stimulus that is not food mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. why would you why would your body start leaking fluids out of your armpits mm-hmm. when there is no threat Mm-hmm. And so that that is that is what we're talking about. It is this thing called classical conditioning, but we're not actually talking about classical conditioning. We're talking about the man behind the miracle. With that being said, does the name Pavlov ring a bell? Oh, uh, that's a knee yes! slapper. <laughs> Get ready. There's going to be so many more. There's so many more. So we're talking about Ivan Pavlov today. And so we're going to give everybody a heads up that I don't know how brushed up on his Russian Abraham is, but I am certainly not. So we are probably going to stumble over many of the names and some of the words that are in this, because simply put, my mouth does not work that way. (laughs) I'm not fluent in speaking these sounds in a meaningful way. So I apologize ahead of time. I will do my best, but this is not something that I am skilled in. We can just lean into the American version of this, like Bongiorno. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like we're we're from Texas when we pronounce these. Ivan Pavlov. Yes. So, who was Ivan Pavlov? What did he do for psychology? Was he vegan? The answer might surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> Questions we will ask. Some of them we will answer. This is probably one of my favorite stories. Like there's some really interesting stuff behind this. So hopefully those listeners out there for the folks who are listening, you'll enjoy this. So let's go ahead and just dive right in. Are you cool with that? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just say really quick, this is a history thing, which honestly, this is fun. Like I like learning about history, even if it's not really your bag. I think there's lots of kind of interesting stuff to unpack here. You can think of it sort of as like a a bio cast <laughs> about yeah, yeah. Uh, about this guy so yeah I, i'm ready let's do it i think too like to that point i know we keep saying let's do this but i to that <laughs> point like in order to understand why we do what we do today 
and why we study the things that we study and understanding like those types of things, you have to understand our history. Like, I think that's something that often gets lost in like the understanding of process. Like if you understand where it came from and kind of the original thought and the original studies, like those seminal works, like if you can really get into that stuff, then you have a better understanding of where we're at today. And so I think that this is definitely in line with the theme of what we're trying to do with the podcast, but it definitely takes a different route where it's kind of like explaining the history behind why we do what we do versus like the mechanisms and the neurology and the biology of why we do what we do. Are you ready to do this? Are you ready to dive in? Yeah, that was a really good name drop that you you were able to squeeze in, into that. So I'm looking forward to it. No, this is going to be fun. We've got a lot to talk about. And and I, I think that it, it's a relevant topic. And just as you said, like there's it, it sets the foundation for so much of our history. So let's go ahead and get started. Real quick before we do start, I do want to say this guy just kind of paint the picture. This guy's got the best facial hair ever. Like he looks like he was probably I mean, he just looks like it, like some of his portraits are so interesting and unique. Like you, he does not look like a nice person. I think maybe he's just like hardened by life. So I don't know. I mean, we'll probably kind of figure that out as we go. Right. So so let's go ahead and jump in just for everyone listening. That happened on accident, but we decided we were just going to keep doing it where we did false starts. So <laughs> we'll, we'll start for real now. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After you, Abraham. All right. It is 1849. Elizabeth Blackwell is the first woman in, U- in the United States to earn a medical degree. James K. Polk becomes the first U.S. president to have his photograph taken. Inspiring the now infamous Nickelback song. <laughs> Most of the history that happened in the world happened in the United States, apparently. <laughs> oh, and the Hungarian Revolution is going on. And in Russia, this is 1849, Ivan Petrovich Pavlov, the most Russian name ever, was born on September 14th. And Ryazan, 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 Russia. Ryazan? Ryazan, maybe? I don't okay. know. Okay. He's the eldest of 11 children, so a family got up into the double digits. It's a lot of work. If anything, they're efficient. (laughs) They were definitely meeting this quotient for child production in their their role. You know... It's funny to think about this, given like what we know about like Russian history. This was probably the worst idea to have this many kids. Like it was not there was not a lot of food going around during these times for these folks. Need more more hands of the proletariat to to till those fields. (laughs) Yeah, it's a whole thing. So Ivan's father, Peter Dmitrovich Pavlov, was a village priest. The Pavlov men had served the Eastern Orthodox Church going back to Peter the Great, who had lived from 1682 to 1725. So there is a centuries old tradition of the Pavlov men participating in this church in their village. And a century is a long time. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So Pavlov attended a church school and theological seminary where his seminary teachers impressed him by their devotion to imparting knowledge. So he had some early models of people who were sort of educators in a way. They were communicating ideas, I guess. Yeah, but in 1870, he actually abandoned his theological studies and decided to devote his life to science to enter the University of St. Petersburg, where he studied natural sciences such as chemistry and physiology. So I would imagine that's probably a heavy that probably took a heavy toll, right? To kind of just be like, I'm done with religion. I'm going to go study science. And that I can't imagine that was really great for the family. This is why those successful churches teach the kids to never ask questions and to never, <laughs> to never impart knowledge because then you question your religious teachings and you go do science. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we end up with the Pavlovs of the world. All right. 
So while he was in school, he studied with some influential scientists who made an impact on his future research. So he's studying, he studied along in labs such as Carl Ludwig, a German atomist, uh, which is, uh, we found out a GRE word for Selena, who mostly wrote these notes. And an anatomist is someone who studies anatomy. Yep. Ludwig, I'm going to keep doing the v sound, I guess. Or again, yeah, I just, just do the Ludwig. You know, that's American way of saying it. Yeah. Demonstrated the existence of a new class of secretory or secretory nerves that control the action of secretion. And by showing that if the nerves are appropriately stimulated, the salivary glands continue to secrete, even though the animal had been decapitated. Ooh. And this initiated the method of experimenting using excised organs. Meaning they're like, oh, wow, what else What else can you do with these body parts, these cadavers, once you have them? This is sort of like poking the lizard's severed tail to see it wiggle around a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is just done at a university level. So it's like, <laughs> you know, that's just one of those things where it's like you've got decapitated animal heads now in this story. So which I guess fits the, the doom and gloom that is Ivan Pavlov's story. So Jeez. you also have the physiologist Rudolf Heidenhain. Heidenhain? Heidenhain? Heidenhain. I think it's that one. Yeah, Heidenhain. He described the active role of the kidney cells in the secretion of urine and proved that secretions, especially saliva, are products of glands. And although we'll get more into his legacy, it is worth noting that it, through his work, Pavlov became an icon of in the Soviet Union for his contributions to science, which we'll enumerate over the, the course of this. And so in 1875, Pavlov completed his course with an outstanding record. He received the degree of candidate of natural sciences hmm. and received his MD at the Imperial Medical Academy in St. Petersburg, graduating in 1879, completing his dissertation in 1883. He studied from 1884 to 1846, 1886, sorry, in Germany under the direction of the cardiovascular physiologist Carl Ludwig and the gastrointestinal physiologist Rudolf Heinehain, as you were just describing. Yeah, so he's studying under these people who are kind of going to inform what he does later. And, and you know, knowing this, you kind of like, it makes sense where he ended up, right? So right. Pavlov became a, a so skillful a surgeon that he was able to introduce a catheter into the femoral artery of a dog almost painlessly without anesthesia and to record the influence on blood pressure of various pharmacological and emotional stimuli. So I'm going to make the argument that it probably wasn't painless. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if they had the dog pointing to one of those pain charts, like, where is your pain on a scale of one to ten? Yeah. Or the dog just go, ow! Like, <laughs> you know, the dog can't, like the, you know, come on. So anyway, it may, but maybe, maybe there were no, like, serious reactions, and maybe that's how they measured it. So even the, like, hair-thin needles they use to give the vaccine, you barely feel them, but they're not painless. They're just right. not painful. Right. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Somewhere on the spectrum. Yeah, it's somewhere in there. there I, I do want to see a dog pointing at this chart, though. So that should be the episode graphic. <laughs> so seven. So seven, Ivan. Yeah. I imagine the dogs are also on a first name basis with them. They're probably not calling him Dr. Pavlov. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so now having worked with Ludwig, Pavlov's first independent research was on the physiology of the circulatory system. And from 1888 to 1890, in the laboratory of Botkin in St. Petersburg, he investigated cardiac physiology and the regulation of blood pressure. In 1881, Pavlov married a pedagogical student, a friend of author Fyodor Dostoevsky, the grimmest author ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he was so impoverished that they first had to live separately. He attributed much of his eventual success to his wife, who was a domestic, religious, and literary woman, and devoted her life to his comfort and work. 
as a good wife should. <laughs> oh, 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 no. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally being tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's a sign of the times, but, you know, we live in 2021, so. <laughs> yeah, I was going to rewatch The Stepford Wives sometime soon, and I was watching the trailer, and it's just like, man, the horrific sexism and misogyny of the the plot of that film yeah but no i honestly like it it just it's sad to hear someone say something like this or like devoted her life and comfort to someone else's work i'm like nobody's job is to do that unless you're literally paying them to do that right and so i don't know it just it's kind of a kind of a sad thing to hear when when people are just sort of treated that way even historically yeah absolutely i mean especially because like you know we know better so we do better right so right in 1890 the massacre at wounded knee took place in the u.s Eritrea is consolidated into a colony by the Italian government. The president of the Mormon church writes a manifesto to abandon polygamy. And Ivan Pavlov became a professor of physiology in the Imperial Medical Academy, where he remained until his resignation in 1924. At the newly founded Institute of Experimental Medicine, he initiated precise surgical procedures for animals with strict attention to their post-operative care and facilities for maintenance of their health. So it sounds like even though this guy is operating on animals, he truly cares about their well-being. In his own way, I think. Yeah, you yeah. Know? I mean, there's there's probably those who would argue like, I don't know, if you're going to do damage to something and then argue that you like really care about it, it's like, okay. Yeah. Sure, I guess. But don't need to get into <laughs> the weeds of that. The important thing is... is in this work is where we really find the important contributions and relevant features of of what came out of this work and how it influenced later psychology and biology and what was going on in this in these studies experiments and these procedures that he was using is he was observing these irregularities in the secretions in normal unanesthetized animals meaning that they were awake they were alert he was doing these little surgery things on them on those organs and Pavlov was led to formulate the laws of the conditioned reflex, a subject that occupied his attention from 1898 to, to 1930. And most people I think are relatively familiar with this, but Pavlov as a natural scientist was really concerned with having precise measurement and having objective, I guess, variables that he could clearly measure in a specific way. And he used the salivary secretion as the quantitative measure of the physical or subjective activity of the animal in order to emphasize the advantage of the objective physiological nature of what he was thinking of as being mental phenomenon and higher nervous activity. And he sought analogies between the conditional reflex, commonly, although incorrectly translated as conditioned reflex, and the spinal reflex. And I guess we'll just really quickly summarize what this the study looked like, although most people are pretty familiar with it at this point, is that while he was studying their salivary secretions, what he did is he would hook up these tubes to the dog's salivary glands. If you look up these pictures of this, it's very sad, so I don't advise it. Right. But they would they'd have these tubes hanging out of their faces from the glands in their cheeks where the saliva was produced, and he would present this meat powder and as the dogs eat, then saliva would secrete into the jars. You could get an exact measurement. Being the good scientist that he is and simply observing the, the natural world as it occurs, that the scientists or the helpers bringing in the food, the dogs would start to salivate before they even started eating. Matter of fact, they would salivate as soon as they saw the scientists. Saliva would start dripping into their these tubes. And rather than think, ah, darn dogs aren't doing what they're supposed to do, 
Pavlov actually considered like, what is happening here that without food being present, they are still salivating. Mm -hmm. And so he started messing around with this arrangement where he would make a chime sound, which I've, I've, I've seen attributed to metal bars, to bells, to whistles, all kinds of stuff. I assume it was a bell because I don't know why he would be banging two rods together, but it was, it was Russia. So I've heard it was a metronome. Oh, okay. A metronome. There you go. Like it was like a click track, right? So he would play little Nas X and then the dogs would start to, (laughs) as he brought in the food, (laughs) if we're going to revisionist history, this thing, let's just have fun. Right. And so he would play the sound crazy because he actually got Amazon to deliver the blood Nikes too. So (laughs) So without, without Pavlov, you wouldn't have Amazon. So thank you, Pavlov. So little has changed since the 1930s, (laughs) 1890s. That's where we're at. Um, Anyway, what he was doing was he would present a sound and then would bring in the food. And he started noticing that just presenting the sound, the dogs would immediately start salivating. And there was no visual stimuli. There was no olfactory stimuli happening. And yet you were seeing the saliva glands produced. Now, this isn't this isn't new information to pretty much anybody who has had even a basic high school level course in psychology. Right. This is this is something everyone's yeah. familiar with. It's portrayed on TV shows and whatnot. But nevertheless, that that was the arrangement. I felt like it was still worth talking about a little bit what happened there. Yeah. And so from there, he sort of expanded on this. And this is important, too, to recognize that, like what we're talking about are behaviors that we can't necessarily control. Right. Like you can't make yourself produce spit or saliva like the, like the way your body does, like you can't control those movements or those behaviors. And so he's studying these behaviors that are literally outside of our control, but take on the properties or take on like this learning history related to certain stimuli. So now he did not just study saliva in these dogs. He actually started kind of taking this information and applying it in these other spaces. So beginning in about 1930, Pavlov tried to apply his laws to the explanation of human psychoses. So he tried to expand it and he had assumed that excessive inhibition characteristics of a psychotic person was a protective mechanism. So this makes sense kind of at the time when you've got Freud coming out and kind of describing a bunch of things like that too. So basically these excessive inhibition characteristics of psychotic persons as a protective mechanism, it shut out the external world in that it excluded injurious stimuli that had previously caused extreme excitation or ex- excitation? excitation excitation yeah excitation in russia this idea became the basis of treating psychiatric patients in a quiet and non-stimulating external surrounding so from this this set the foundation for a lot of what was to come both in psychology in general and with respect to really beginning the behavioral science movement specifically we're not going to dive into Watson, but Watson was heavily influenced by this, you know, being also someone who is interested in natural science, seeing like, wow, we can understand what looks like automatic human behavior that is influenced by external stimuli is so much more objective than saying things like, oh, their mind just created this thing and then they just did it. And he's like, yeah. but but how do you know? Like, where do you look? What are you measuring? How, like, it sounds like you're making three inferential leaps to come to every single conclusion. And with this, you have a very straightforward, here is an observable, agreed upon event that takes place, an observable, agreed upon reaction that takes place in response. You can turn it on and off with extreme experimental rigor every single time. It was a game-changing theory to emerge yeah absolutely the theory is this learning procedure that involves pairing a stimulus any kind of event really 
with a response. And what's important, I think, that often gets missed in this is just that he's not actually conditioning the response per se. The response just is like the dog was salivating in under one condition or another. What he was conditioning is the effect of a stimulus on that response. Yes. And so he was saying, like, I'm just going to make it so that the same response occurs but in a different set of events, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where we get the whole idea of the sort of flop sweats when you're nervous is like normally like the, if you were to look at just a evolutionary perspective, extreme threat might be a time when you get this sort of sweat reaction right? where you, there's the nervousness and the anxiety and, and that, that produces a sort of sweat thing. And then you might have a substitute event, which is something like speaking in front of a crowd of people is a common one for people. Yeah. Or you're going into like a, a big interview or something, something where there's some high stakes. There's no danger there. There's no threat. There's no anything. What you have instead is an alternate event that's evoking or eliciting that same reaction, which is really interesting. Yeah. Another example of this would be why you start salivating when you see like a sign for your favorite restaurant, right? Like, so originally you would salivate when you get that Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich in your mouth, right? That's when you start salivating. But now what you start doing is the minute you see a Chick-fil-A sign, especially on Sundays, you start salivating immediately, especially on Sundays, especially on Sundays, right? When you can't get it. But the idea is that originally it was the food that would make you salivate. It's not just the food anymore. It's the food is paired up or linked with some other event. And now that other event makes you salivate. And that's true for every human reflex. It, it can be conditioned somewhere, or at least most of them uh, it can be conditioned somewhere. I, I shouldn't say every. I, I don't want to deal in absolutes. I'm not a Sith Lord or anything. But I, I do want to be clear. Like, you know, you can actually develop these types of relationships through this pairings process, through this learning process. I know someone who told me that they cannot poop unless they have something to read hmm. what that sort of describes everyone's now like why are you talking about poop <laughs> our bowels releasing is a natural reflex but it's something that we do gain control over mm -hmm. but there is still a part of this the muscle movement and contractions that allow that process to happen are part of a reflex that we have and that reflex can be conditioned. And in his case, he accidentally conditioned himself by virtue of reading things whenever he was using the restroom, whenever he was having a bowel movement, that it became so, so strong a substitute stimulus that it basically replaced the natural stimulus of just sort of being in that position, in that location, and instead yeah. also needed to supplement it with with reading material. Although I think that's probably an oversimplification of what was going on in that process. The point is to demonstrate the fact that 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 is another example of sort of how this conditioning takes place. We condition our reflexes all the time. Yeah. So many things so frequently. So that's just something to consider. So all of the work that Pavlov did culminated in his book, Lectures on the Work of the Digestive Glands, which was published in 1897. And showcased a lot of uh, his discoveries and research. I could not imagine reading that book. I kind of do want to read it, but it seems like it would be very dry. It does. I'm like the title alone and the date at which it was published. Very ironically dry, right? It was 124 years ago that was published. Oh my God, that's crazy. So not too long ago, I had heard this thing though that made me laugh and it made me really think about this too. And it basically said that Pavlov probably thought about feeding his dogs whenever bells or sounds went off, like whenever certain chimes went off. And I think about that all the time, <laughs> like he had to have, right? Like you really think about that. There's no way that he didn't hear like a a generalized sound or a similar enough sound that he wasn't like, oh, yeah, Dobner needs to eat. Like, 
I can't imagine that he didn't do that. Right. Yeah. And I think that does highlight an important fact that all of these are always bi-directional, which is to say that when the dog started salivating, he might have had some like emotional experience of like excitement. Right. Yeah. And all of that comes a little bit with this relation to this respondent conditioning or reflexive conditioning that he was he was starting to describe. So it's definitely something that the process itself has been around forever. It seems like this is a, a natural part of evolution that yeah. organisms will learn to do this. And it was only first described by him discovering and describing that process in the late 1800s. Yeah, there's a really great book that talks about like evolutionary processes related to this type of thing, but also with like operant conditioning. If you get to to read The Science of Consequences, it's fantastic for have, this type yeah. of stuff. If you really uh I love it. It's, yeah, it's, it's a I good just one. Re- that's mid-episode recommendation. Recommendations. Go read Science of Consequences by Susan Schneider. It's fantastic. Agreed. All right, some other notable scientific discoveries were going on during this time. You know, we may as well just point out some of the fun stuff that was happening during Pavlov's life. So as we said, he was born in 1849 and 1859. Charles Darwin proposes his theory of evolution by natural selection. In 1869, Dmitry Ivanovich Mendeleev was a Russian chemist and inventor best known for formulating the periodic law and creating the periodic table, which is a very sturdy table. (laughs) Perfect for setting coffee on. In 1897, Sigmund Freud began his famous course of self-analysis, leading down a long path of confusing, (laughs) misleading hypotheses. (laughs) And so much cocaine. So much cocaine. So much sex. (laughs) God, that guy was... He was basically like, he was like, this is what Hollywood's going to be in 40 years, everybody. (laughs) He, he was the motley crew of psychology. <laughs> 1898, Marie Curie discovered radium and polonium. Also in 1898, Martinus Bejerink <laughs> later discovered the virus infections. So basically, the scientific community had a lot going on, and many of the discoveries found their way into some not-so-good people. There was also the Manhattan Project going on and uh, the discovery of how to make weapons a lot better at being weapons and a lot more efficient at killing people. I was having this discussion with somebody the other day and it was like science is rarely ever good or bad. Science simply is. It's the application that becomes the problem, right? So like right. understanding nuclear fission is probably not a bad thing, nor is it a good thing. It simply is more knowledge about the universe. But the problem is that we applied it to blowing stuff up. That becomes a problem, right? So Anyway, I digress. That's a soapbox thing that I can get into, but actually might tease some future episodes. Now, during the last two years of his life, Pavlov gradually ceased criticisms of the government and even stated that he hoped to see the success of the government at the helm of his country. So this change of heart may have been a result of increased government support of science and of his own feelings of patriotism when war with Japan seemed imminent. So he was never a communist, nor was he responsible for the technique of brainwashing that has sometimes been ascribed to him. So he was not any of those things. He was simply a scientist wanting to understand the world a little bit more. Yeah, the MK Ultra was not really directly related to anything that he did, although I think that they ended up trying to employ similar techniques, mm-hmm. which I feel like they would have done regardless. But again, it's like any knowledge can be put to bad use. So, right. With that being said, let's talk about a little bit of his like his contributions to the field, like kind of the legacy that he left and maybe even some things that he earned as a result of his groundbreaking work. 
Yeah, so he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. The or is confusing to me, but <laughs> they're like, we're giving you a prize for something, one, one of these two things. Yeah. But that's what it's called, the, the Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 1904 for his work on digestive secretions. And Pavlov devised an operation to prepare a miniature stomach, which would be isolated from ingesting food, but still retain the nerve supplies. The procedure allowed him to study gastrointestinal secretions and animals. And as a side note, and unrelated to Pavlov directly, but I'm aware of an art exhibit. I think there's a couple of them now that is a full working digestive system where you actually, it's like a machine that you put food in and you visually watch the food being like digested and then pooped out on the other end of the machine. That is wild. I know. It's really, it's really interesting. I'd, I'd really want to see it. Yeah. Like in person. I think it'd be cool. That's so wild. So in 1901, he was elected a corresponding member of the Russian Academy of Sciences. And in 1904, he was awarded a Nobel Prize. We talked about that. And in 1907, he was elected academic, academician, academician, I guess <laughs> that was weird of the Russian Academy of Sciences. In 1912, he was given an honorary doctorate at Cambridge University. So a lot of really, he, I mean, he's he's gotten a lot of recognition for this stuff. His method of studying the normal healthy animal and natural conditions made his contributions to science possible. You know, say what you will. And I think there are plenty of things to criticize about the procedures that he he decided to employ. It's done now. We know better. We're not going to do it again. He was able to formulate the idea of the conditioned reflex because of his ability to reduce a complex situation to the simple organized terms of an experiment. This is sometimes called reductionism. People use that term in different ways. I'm not going to get into, but when you take a variable and isolate it in such a way that you can more thoroughly understand that variable, that is a way of doing science that it can be extraordinarily useful. He recognized that in doing this, he did omit any subjective components of the features of that situation, which is what happens when you do research in this way. So he insisted it's not possible to deal with mental phenomenon scientifically except by reducing them to their measurable physiological quantities. So he had this idea of like, if we're going to understand this psychology, mental stuff, we have to look at the objective variables that we do have. And those mental or those objective variables are found in physiology was sort of his case. And again, that just helped sort of set the path for moving forward in future psychological fields, such as behaviorism, dealing with objective phenomenon. To me, this makes logical sense, right? Like, Anthony Bourdain describes this like when you go and you eat pasta, like you don't eat pasta for the sauce. You eat pasta for the pasta. So like if the pasta doesn't taste good, then why are you eating it? So the idea to me is like the same thing, like to understand why something works, you have to understand its basic mechanisms, its basic components and to describe it and how they interact with one another. Like, I don't know anybody who just goes and straight up eats pasta. They usually eat pasta with sauce and all the ingredients and all the herbs and all that stuff, right? Usually it's a combination of things, but you understand that they are multiple ingredients in the same thing to make it work. And that's kind of what he's saying is like, you have to understand the individual ingredients to make the entire thing work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You want the, like doing science to understand what makes pasta taste good. And the experience of enjoying pasta are two different things, but they're closely related. Yeah. And so by understanding the process by which cooking, like what chemical reactions and what, you know, physical reactions occur when you cook food and how to capitalize on that to make food taste better and be more nutritious, et cetera, does not take away from the fact that you enjoy it. It doesn't really contribute to what that experience of enjoyment 
is. I mean, it doesn't describe enjoying it any further. Yeah. But it's not irrelevant to that experience either. Absolutely. So although Pavlov's work laid the basis for the scientific analysis of behavior, like it did kind of give us a basis to do this in notwithstanding his stature as a scientist and a physiologist, his work was subject to certain limitations. So for example, Philosophically, we, while recognizing the preeminence of the subject and its independence of scientific methods, he did not, in his enthusiasm for the science, clarify or define the separation. So that was one thing that he didn't really do is define what a clear separation was in this type of phenomenon. And furthermore, clinically, he credulously accepted psychiatric views concerning schizophrenia and paranoia. And he adopted such neural concepts as induction and irradiation as valid for higher mental activity. So where his objective measurement started to fall apart, he kind of just turned right back to the same sort of systems. Many psychiatrists now consider his explanations too limited, which makes sense if you consider the complexities that go along with like neurology and all that. And some neurophysiologists have taken greater interest in other developments, such as electrophysiology and biochemistry. But despite this, Pavlov actually had a few prominent students outside of Russia, and and the work is still kind of informing a lot of psychological practice today. And just as we said, you know, his method of working with animals that were healthy and unanesthetized over the lifetime is not really accepted in physiology. That's not how people would do it now. But that was that was the tools he had at the time. Not trying to apologize for him or make excuses for it, but that is what happened. And we're just, you know, trying to communicate effectively what happened more or less. Yeah, absolutely. So in the understanding of behaviorism in general and understanding kind of where Pavlov's classical conditioning fits in, there are two major camps that really look at how behavior is shaped. We've got classical conditioning and operant conditioning. And of course, like, you know, there are a lot of derivatives and a lot of kind of like breakdowns from that. But these are the two major things that you'll learn in like Psych 101. And so classical conditioning is that stimulus response relationship where, you know, you produce the metronome and now I salivate, right? That there's a learning process there. But most of our learned behavior is going to be this idea of operant conditioning. And this is behavior that we learn in the individual lifetime. And, and I think one of the big differences between these two is understanding the type of behavior we're talking about. With classical conditioning, we're often talking about behavior that we're hardwired for that every member of the species will engage in, or at least most of the members of the species will. Like Those reflexes, yeah. Yeah, those reflexes. Most humans sweat, most humans salivate, most humans dilate their pupils in the presence of light like that's that's kind of a, a common thing but when it comes to operant conditioning the idea is that type of behavior is most of our behavior is learned right so like riding a bike speaking all of those things are unique to that individual's learning history and so there are very stark differences between the ways that learning happens in these types of conditioning processes this is an oversimplification but it's not inaccurate but to think of the classical or pavlovian conditioning as it's also called this is the involuntary reflexes that we have. So yep. anything our body does that's an involuntary reflex, you can think of in that camp. And then the operant conditioning is the voluntary learned behaviors that we that we have. Yep. And so it's sort of involuntary versus voluntary is kind of a way that I've I've talked about it with undergrads to help them sort of understand the d- distinction here. It is also worth noting that there is nothing that we do that doesn't involve both of those things operating at the same time in some part of that behavior. So if you take any one behavior that you do, at some point in that line, there was classical conditioning. At some point, there was operant conditioning. Probably they were layered on top of each other as that's going on, which is to say something elicited a physical response from you, and there was something that you did that you had learned from previous experience. And so just to highlight what you had said, the stimulus response, meaning there was some 
event that took place that that elicited a reflex in the the organism of interest, let's say people. Mm -hmm. And with the operant conditioning, I guess a way of thinking about it is there was some antecedent event, some preceding event that took place that had you behave with respect to that event that produced some outcome. And that outcome informed how you then would react to that preceding event in the future. Okay, so let's say your preceding event is you are in your space with some kind of sexually arousing thing and you're about to do your thing individually and then you hear someone walking toward your direction. You might then quickly put all those things away and zip up your pants and then when they enter, you are not embarrassed presumably yeah by, by being caught doing something you weren't supposed to or what might have happened is they you heard their their footsteps they walked into the room you were like in the middle of your business and and then as a consequence there they react to that and you put your stuff away and you have to clean up and and you learn that that is uh next time you hear footsteps you're gonna do something differently i think that illustrates it pretty well thanks that was my yeah. my example <laughs> I guess <laughs> I could have gone with anything. And for some reason I went with that. Yeah. Hey, listen, everybody relates to masturbation for some, well, most people do, I should say. All right. So we do have some interesting tidbits that we kind of want to share before to kind of wrap up. But before we do, I have one question for you. Why was Pavlov's hair so soft? I don't know. Classical conditioning. <laughs> Dad joke My number favorite two. behavior analysis joke. My favorite one. So to kind of wrap up and give you a couple of extra tidbits about this interesting man in his life. In 1881, Pavlov married Serafima or Sarah Vasilevna Karchevskaya, Karchevskaya, Karchevskaya. Okay. Serafima Vasilevna Karchevskaya. See, I'm getting better. I'm getting fluent. Who was a teacher and the daughter of a doctor in the Black Sea Fleet. They did have a son. His name was Verchik. He died very suddenly as a child. And then three sons, Vladimir, Victor, and whoa, those are constants that don't go next to each other. Vsevolod, one of whom was a well-known physicist and professor of physics at Leningrad in 1925, and also a daughter, Vera. In 1882, he earned his doctorate. His thesis, The Centrifugal Nerves of the Heart, was what he had published to earn that doctorate. So that actually sounds pretty interesting. I, I might read that and not understand a word of it. Yeah, that also became a hit song later. <laughs> Centrifugal nerves of the heart. Centrifugal nerves of the heart. He then spent two years in Germany studying digestion in dogs. And Dr. Pavlov died in Leningrad in February. Yeah, in case, spoiler alert, I guess, in case you didn't know. Did that make it to the, to the <laughs> 2000s? No. Making it to be, uh, what would it be, 170 now or something? Anyway, yeah, something something wild like that. He died in, on February 27th, 1936 of pneumonia, which given the state of the country at the time of his death, he would have likely have suffered quite a bit had he lived much longer. So mm -hmm. maybe he dodged a bullet. Given the uh, the famines and the war and just the state of Russia during World War II, there's probably kind of a, I don't want to say it was like a saving grace, but it's probably a mercy that he had passed away as a, as a result of pneumonia. The pneumonia bullet saved him from the famine bullet yeah well i was reading some story about how like cannibalism was pretty i mean we i wasn't reading some story we just talked about that yeah the cannibalism was pretty rampant during this time in russia due to the famine so just a week ago yeah just a week ago what am i doing that was also referenced in city of thieves by um david benioff which is like kind of a 
historically accurate retell uh, like fiction story. So nice. the last tidbit I want to share is pretty interesting and something that you kind of see the DNA of like Pavlov and his work and like his influences like well into the future. One of his lab assistants, Sergi Tech Tech I saved this one for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say it. You're welcome. It begins with a T. It's a T S C H. It is four consonants in a row. I can't. This man, Mr. Sergi, was a former lab assistant to Pavlov and created the Iron Front logo, which is the logo that you'll see used by Antifa, the circle with the three arrows. And it was created during World War II to be used as like a graffiti to easily paint over Nazi propaganda. So like they would put swastikas up and his revolutionary groups using the Iron Front would go and they would paint over swastikas at the time. And so the logo is currently used by Antifa, which was originally named Antifascistischaktion. So I couldn't say that either. So I told you my mouth is not going to work, but that this is something that's like, you still see this DNA today. You still see that symbolism. So the, the more colloquial, or I guess more modern version of this is anti-fascist. Is that correct? Or mm-hmm. an- anti-fascist? That is correct. Yeah. Yes, that is correct. All right. So if you're anti-antifa, does that mean you're pro-fascist? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just, just <laughs> yeah. Just want to know where that, that was at. <laughs> well, just in case Jordan Peterson's listening. Oh Yeah. We want to make sure sure. it's clear for him. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess some quick take on points. I think just Pavlov was an interesting dude. I think being male had the luxury of being propped up in his field to be successful. And he was. And he made he was a good natural scientist who made important discoveries that may have and may have slipped by lesser scientists and probably did. Honestly, like it's it's very possible that some of these discoveries could have happened at other points in history if other people had been had the kind of approach that Pavlov did. And so it's, he really did set an incredibly important precedent that forever changed the field of psychology that had he not done that, it's very possible. We would have never had the version of behaviorism that we have today. Mm -hmm. Uh, And obviously we don't know, but it was a foundational piece of science that was done. And, and I think it definitely is worth the understanding and recognition of what it was for what it was. Yeah. And I think a big thing that I would say, too, is that, you know, he was not a psychologist. No, he wasn't at all. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really interesting about this. And he was not a psychologist. So he brought a unique perspective to the discipline of psychology that didn't exist. Right. Like he didn't just study dog saliva. Like what he studied was how to quantify phenomenon. Like he brought quantifiable measures to psychological practice. Without that, you wouldn't have behaviorism. You wouldn't have psychological testing. You wouldn't have all these other things because truly that like foundational knowledge of quantifying psychological phenomenon started with him. And that's, I would make the argument a larger contribution than classical conditioning. Like I think classical conditioning is important, understanding stimuli and relations to to responses, but and understanding how the application of our field works, it, it wouldn't exist without quantifiable measures. I think that's a fair point. And, and I do want to emphasize, like, I'm not trying to make a hero out of Pavlov. I, I think he was a complex person that a lot of people would find fault with for many of the things that he did. And I understand that. And just as you said, the contributions that came from the work he did because of the approach that he had to understanding science and as you said, like came in from a different field, but ended up ultimately influencing psychologists, even though he didn't really seem to have an interest in psychology until he was like, wow, all of a sudden I'm seeing anticipatory behavior. This seems like mental behavior. Like we'd say, like they must be expecting the food. What does that mean? Well, I can now quantify that. You know, I can say mm-hmm. like there is a very clear set of events that I can measure 
that take place. That was a, a really important way of approaching the field that was just so different than had it than how it had been done up to that point. I have no other take on points. I mean, I think he's super interesting, but I, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that we got to do this episode and a huge thank you to Selena for putting this together and doing the notes for these because this is a, this was a really fun episode to go through. It was. Yes. Thank you very much. And on that, ready for some listener mail? Let's do it. Okay. All right. So uh, this comes from Mike. He says, hey, first, I want to say huge fan of the show. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. It says Abraham and Shane are awesome. Thanks again, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) I love how your show strikes a perfect balance between scientifically thorough and digestible content. I relate to the guys on a number of levels, especially as a musician who happens to be in grad school for behavior analysis. Nice. The political and social views are great, too, and add so much personality to why we do what we do. And then he goes on to request. So at the time that he was requesting this World Autism Awareness Day, he said, I'd love to listen to an episode dedicated to ABA and curious to hear a practitioner's perspective on the many criticisms of the field. Unfortunately, much of the autistic community views ABA as abusive, and this this is a whole thing. I'm not going to go into much of what he said, but uh, essentially he says it saddens me so much because I know it doesn't represent ABA as a whole, but reflects poor training, supervision, and programming. And so he requests that we talk about essentially this controversy. This has been sort of swirling in our conversation. So first, I just want to say, Mike, thank you so much for writing in. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the recommendation and the kind words. We are 100% working on this now. As I said, we've been kind of talking about this as a group, as the team for a while, and we did finally decide, you know, let's let's go ahead and tackle this, and we're going to be as thorough, as diplomatic, and as accurate as we can. This is going to be a highly sensitive discussion, so we really want to get it right. So this is this is coming. It is high, high priority, and thank you for the recommendation. In those discussions, we have recognized that this is a delicate subject that talks about some pretty traumatic things for some folks and some pretty emotional responses from others. So we want to make sure that if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. We're going to do it justice. We're going to give the topic the nuance that it deserves, because I think that's the thing is it deserves nuance. So that's our goal going forward. It's going to be a little bit of time because we do want to take our time to make sure it's thorough. And like and like Abraham said, diplomatic. It approaches every side. It really analyzes the context. And yeah, so thank you for that. We're, we're really excited to dig into that one. Cool. All right, let's do some recommendations. Let's do it. Recommendations. Okay, I recently recommended the late night talk show host, Amber Ruffin. And I had mentioned in that that she was... Reminded me in some ways of John Oliver. And so today I am recommending John Oliver, who (laughs) is one of my absolute favorites. I seriously cannot get enough of his humor, of his deep dives on topics. I feel like I learned so much when I watch his show. And it's I mean, it's like 50 percent jokes. And yet you walk away with so much information. Yeah, this is on HBO but you can usually watch the highlighted clips from this on YouTube after it's published. So I just could not recommend it highly enough. I, th- I think he's he's brilliant, even though it's, it's very clear he's a, he is a left leaning late night talk show host. He does such a good job of providing like a lot of information on specific topics 
And so it's like, even if you don't agree with the per- political perspective, you learn a lot about things that are unrelated to politics necessarily. Yeah. So he, he goes into like things like the pregnancy crisis centers. He went into a big thing on like coal at some point. He did one, oh, on scientific research, he did a really good one. Yeah. And so just really, really cool topics. I, I like I said, can't, can't recommend it strongly enough. It is, it is one of my absolute favorites. Yeah. He's, he's great. He's great. So what a good recommendation. Thanks. So. I recommended something that doesn't take any thought. So <laughs> I recommended a uh, local eatery. I say local. It's in Orlando. It's called the Winter Park Biscuit Company. And so, first of all, I, I always make the joke. It's like, I always wanted to eat at a biscuit company. Like, growing <laughs> up in the South, biscuits are just such a great thing in general. Like, good, warm biscuits, flaky biscuits, whatever you want. to. Uh, they're just so good. So this place opened in 2017, and they are a plant-based, entirely vegan company that does biscuits that have like it's like good like just i guess it's comfort food like it's good vegan comfort food and abraham i'm going to text you pictures of this place because you it's going to blow your mind but they do like these giant quote-unquote chicken wings that are like doused in buffalo sauce they do this death valley chicken sandwich that's a spicy chicken patty and i say chicken but it's not chicken so it's like it's all vegan they've got a dry spice it's got jalapenos on it and it's just like this beautiful like awesome like gluttonous sandwich they do biscuits and gravy they do loaded fries they do uh burgers they do all kinds of stuff and they even do a kale caesar salad if which you know for those of you who eat caesar salads just know there's anchovies in it so i don't know i just i just love places like this i love places that this places like this exist and it's nice to be able to go get food and not have to worry about like oh is there something in this that's gonna be upsetting or be bad for me it's based out of this place called East End Market in Orlando, which has like a bunch of shops. Like it's got a cool bookstore in it and it's got a really great coffee shop. So it's like this cool little indie operated place. And it's just amazing. It's just amazing. So I would recommend going to check it out. Man, your your name must be Dr. Pavlov because you are making me salivate. <laughs> yes. And we had to get the third joke in. We could not let that go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Perfect. Thank you so much for recording with me today, Shane. Thank you again, Selena, for your amazing notes. Thank you, everyone who listened to this episode. Thank you, Mike, for writing in. If you would like to request a topic from us or uh, recommend something that we talk about or tell us how much you love us, we really like hearing that thing. Mm -hmm. And if you have some more that we maybe missed on Pavlov, please write in and let us know. You can reach us at info at www.wwdpodcast.com and all of the social media platforms where we exist, which is all the social media platforms. Uh huh. If you are John Oliver or you really like the Winter Park Biscuit Company or you have some other plant-based biscuits you'd like to recommend, please send those our way. Yeah. Happy to hear those. And I think that is all I have. you have anything else? Nope, that's all I got. Thank you so much for listening. This is Abraham. And it's Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O., Shane, and Miranda. 
Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Quantify phenomenon. Centrifuge. 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 Cent